Let's analyze misinformation. Peace. Investigate real education. And utilize family spiritualization. And discover the soul of us. The soul. Good evening, good evening, good evening on this good Friday. I'm coming to you live on Facebook. Uh, you guys, this is the Soul of Us podcast. Um, just welcome. Come on in. Come on in. We appreciate you. Today's guest, uh, we have a, a guest host again. Um, he, he, he was on our other episode, one of our previous episodes, I think it was episode three, Perception. Uh, my pop. Uh, one of the main reasons I am the way that I am. Um, great person to talk about this, uh, the impact of uh, police brutality. But I'll let him go ahead and introduce himself again. Um, go ahead, Pop. My name is Thomas Prey, and like I said before, I'm a black man living in America, hoping to have some positive impact as we try to gain emotional wellness. That's right. That's right. That's right. Appreciate you, Pop. You know, your positive support um, for me. Um, so, you know, you're already doing your job because, you know, you. they say you only got to reach one and, and your job is, you know, so I might be that one, right? Yeah, you might be that one. Right. So I appreciate you. So I, I think we're going to have a dynamic conversation today. Uh, you know, um, it's police brutality, the impact of police brutality, the history the correlation between then and now, you feel me? The impact of trauma, you know, and how it shapes our reality. So, you know, we're going to go ahead and get started. We're not going to delay any further. I'm your host, your favorite mental health coach, Hanif Akiyemi, and this is episode 10, episode 10 of the Soul of Us podcast, uh, the impact of police brutality, um, you know, and everything that we talk about is geared towards emotional wellness, right? So just to recap, you know, last episode, we uh, we talked about um, trauma, the hurt and the healing, part two. And we talked about the different responses to trauma. So we outlined how trauma shapes our reality, how trauma shapes our behavior, and how we, we, we normalize those behaviors. We don't even sometimes know that we're doing it. It's just, you know an unwanted pattern of behavior that we have that shapes our reality. And it's based on past experiences or perceived thoughts um, about things. So last episode was dynamic. So this episode is really going to follow up on it because now this is another form of trauma. And we're going to talk about how, you know, police brutality and, and how it shapes our, our reality. So let's get started. You know, we're going to start with the history. Right. And, and who other than my pop, you know, the resident historian to get us started. Go ahead, pop. Well, if you're going to look at the impact that police brutality has had on our people, you, you definitely have to look back into the past and realize that initially there were no police forces in America. There were organizations that were devised and created strictly for the purpose of controlling the slave population. And those entities persisted until the time of emancipation, at which point they were transferred over to a new type of force, which was implemented to enforce the Black Code. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, the black codes. Black codes allowed them to institute laws that would make it virtually impossible for a free black man to actually have freedom. They required contracts, yearly contracts of employment and failure to have such a contract would result in incarceration and forced labor. In other words, slavery point 2.0. Right. They yeah. further, they went steps further to uh, enforce vagrancy laws and restrict ownership of certain types of property, basically limiting the opportunities given to the newly freed. These persisted until such time as the Jim Crow laws were enacted, at which point the first police forces were organized and they initially were basically run, operated, and funded by the Ku Klux Klan. Wow. Wow. So, so they were they were basically tied into all levels of government. You couldn't get elected without a Ku Klux Klan endorsement in this country up until the 1940s. Wow. So any policing done was still done with the ideology that we were not equal by any stretch of anyone's imagination. Man. The uh, first, what we would consider modern day police force was formed in Boston in approximately the 1920s. And even at that point, there were still political, there was still high levels of political corruption, which inhibited the growth of the black community. Uh, uh. And we all know that in the South, they were basically still arms. They basically still acted as arms of white supremacist groups up until the time, hell, to, to this day. Huh. To this day, in some locations, they are still operated as arms of of white supremacy groups. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I live in the South, and I've I've heard stories, and and then you know, there's documentaries that still point to this day the kind of systemic injustice when it comes to uh, policing, um, and like especially like I know it's uh, one thing that just pops in mind is Dotham, Alabama. Uh, and Dotham is like a little small town, uh, but it's like uh, has had like a uh, uh, rich history of police and justice, criminal justice. And when it comes to uh, con minority communities and communities of, uh, you know, poor communities. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, I, and it's like, you know, you saying what you just said, it's like. So I knew this stuff, but just hearing it again and then just hearing like you having to have a Ku Klux Klan endorsement to even be an elected official, you know, or or just the the foundation of which policing was built upon. Right. Yeah. Well, you think about who the biggest lobbying groups 
in Washington have been for the past 100, 200 years, the NRA. And where did the NRA stem from? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that was the, the Southerners, right? You know, and, and guns rights and, and keeping our rights to guns and, and, and being able to hunt, right? Yeah, but it, the right to hunt is not, that's not impeded by the gun laws that we need to enact. Because let's face it, you don't need an AR-15 to shoot a deer. Nah, nah, nah. It's for recreational purposes. Yeah, yeah. That's it. That's good. But them country boys, you know, I'm not going to lie, pop. Them country boys be having that weight. They had that weight. You know, you come to the country, you know, um, having your gun, having um, having your arms is very, it's is very, you know, people are prideful about it. So you may have them out there with an AR, with a big old 381, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, okay. And yeah, 381, I can, you can, you can justify that. That's still not something that's going to create mass hysteria. Nah. You have to be, you have to be very, very good in order to kill more than a couple of people in a minute Yeah. with a 381. Yeah. Okay. But you you basically don't need much skill at all to kill a bunch of people in a minute with an AR fifteen. Nah, nah. And you know, and 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 that's why, you know, like just a lot of life in this country has been dictated by Southern culture. Uh and uh you know, like the impact of, like we're saying, like guns rights, uh, gun control and uh, controlling, you know, communities, uh, people, um, these being uh, at the forefront and foundation of policing in this this this, this country. Uh, so it, it, it's just it like how that even comes up to like we talk about the history, right, from. Uh, you know, when police really came online in America was around the 1920s, like you said. Before that, it was the slave patrol, right? In a few, because you know, the Fugitive Slave Act, you know, all of these different, it was multiple Fugitive Slave Acts. So, where yes. it was, you know, that became a profitable thing where, you know, they were the sheriffs, you know, yeah. they were making sure everybody's papers was correct, making sure, you know, that was your patrolman before the patrolman. Yeah, they basically acted as the posse, duly, dep duly deputized by the local sheriff. Right. And within a state or multiple states via the uh, Runaway Slave Act, they had powers of, they had powers to apprehend and punish in some cases yeah yeah i mean we've seen it uh we've seen the um the movies 12 years a slave we've seen uh harriet uh we've seen uh even even with it being uh kind of glamorized and kind of uh made a comedy Django. you know we've seen that that slave catcher that patrolman the posse that's deputized to keep uh you know a certain community down certain 
uh, people down. Um, and it's not always just been black, you know, it's definitely uh, Native American fall into that uh, at different times and different wars. Uh, other minorities fall into that same policing, same, you know, bully mentality, you know, being the bullied. Yeah, but what's really what's really deep is that even with the dramatization, they can't really touch the reality of the brutality that was that was impacted upon the black community because it wouldn't they couldn't even rate they couldn't even put it in the rating system some of the acts that were were perpetrated against us and and I'm glad you went there because that's at the root of what we're talking about is like so we talked about the history of police and how police came on but now you know what we're here to talk about is police brutality and it starts with that trauma that 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 brutality like you said like we 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 look at like you said the glamorization and but no one knows like to the extent unless you can get real footage or real testimony about it like what these people because even in 12 years of slave let's just take that example as a movie that man was robbed of his freedom right by slave catchers and then put you know that's a whole them we always talk about the physical but the mental uh you know trauma that came along with that with you seeing yourself as an upstanding individual but at any given notice people who are deputized people who are feeling like they are power have the authority over you can wield that authority at any given moment. Absolutely. And like I said, it it, it pales in the movies can pale in comparison to some of the, the the heinous brutality that was impacting that impacted the mental health of the black community. Imagine if you can for a moment seeing someone you know, let alone let alone it be someone you love. Let's you know take it to that to the level of someone you love, a family member. Okay, being hung, burned, shot, tied to the back of a car, and dragged through the neighborhood so everybody can see. That happened. That's documented. Those are documented facts from the Tulsa riots. From the Tulsa. Uh, yeah, genocide. Might as well call it genocide. Right. It was, it was beyond massacre. It was a genocide. Yeah. yeah, it was about three thousand people that actually got affected by that. And then, and then the the transgenerational impact of those who lived through it, having to pass that information on, in some way, shape, or form even if not intentionally, to others. And and that just reminds me of uh, what happened in, uh, I think that was Virginia, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what, you know, uh, I think it's uh, Williamsport. Hold on. I want to be correct when I say it. Yeah, 
Nah, that wasn't it. <laughs> but it's a. Uh, it brings me to. Uh, I I just recently came across a. Uh, uh, it was basically like when um, reconstruction happened, like you were talking about the history of it, and uh, you had a a switch of political power in Virginia, and um, one of the cities. It slips my mind right now, and I apologize. I have that for you guys. But it's in Virginia, if I'm not mistaken, or Maryland. No, it wasn't that. wasn't that. Had to be VA. Yeah, so it was a massacre in VA, like just like what you're talking about, you know. Um, and it was, it was, you know, because of the shift of power, because basically what happened is African Americans post slavery had, you know, at that time just got right into um, being involved politically, changing the structure of you know, the community that they lived in. So you had like judges, councilmen, representatives, all these people have basically shifted the power of the local community through the elections. So with the white men there at that time, and like you said, at this time, you you have people who are deputized, right? People who are feeling as though they have authority over you, being able to wield their power. The guns, right? They came in and they basically, you know, probably weren't as many people as Tulsa, but I'm going to have that for this next episode and I'm going to put that out there. But, you know, specifically, you know, they basically murdered and did a coup d'etat. A coup d'etat. Basically came in and, and murdered Rob, beat, burned all these people's homes as a domestic terrorism, right? As a way to take back power politically in this community. So this is at the forefront of policing and politics, right? And the justice system. So this is like you're saying, this people who lived through that time then had children. And their children had to then live through the aftermath and have children. So then it, it started to shape our minds, shape our, the way we interact with the police, because we're not even talking about Jim Crow. We're talking prior to Jim Crow. Yes. We're, we're talking about post-slavery, you know, up until like the 1920s. And then we get into the 20s and we got police. And we know and understand it's been numerous stories of from that time of policing injustice whether it may be the Emmett Till story uh whether it may be um 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 uh, uh bloody sunday you know these were cops beating on people marching for freedom you know these these were, like you said, these were people who had been deputized by the KKK. 
You know, they may have been police, but they have been deputized. They have been given the authority to act upon and fulfill the wishes of what we would say, white supremacy or racism. And in a lot of cases, they were actual members. And that's the truth. That's the honest to God truth that it would be because we see it. It's there within police of that time. You know, where they may have now been on their deathbed and come out and tell the honest truth about what happened then and, you know, and how, you know, this is, you know, what was I was told to do and how I was told to do it. You know, we even got that with the Martin Luther King assassination, right? Like it's 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 in the law. I mean, excuse me, it's in the it's in the books. That they were taking the police, the Memphis State Police, uh, Memphis Police Department, the uh, FBI, um, United States government as a whole was taken to court by the Martin Luther King family for a dollar in a civil suit. And they were found guilty in the court of law for the assassination. Again, and this is all during Jim Crow, civil rights, and, and the impact of that and than the people who lived through that and having to go through that and what that did, right? You know, how we envision the police, right? We haven't even gotten to when we started to become included in everything. Absolutely. When we became included. But when when exactly do you feel as though we became included? That's a That's a question this up for debate so what i mean by that is because uh, we're talking about the history and we talk about the impact so we talk about the then and now so you know it wasn't like so now it's 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 police don't look the same right so back then in the south especially if you got pulled over you knew it was a white cop yeah you know this was you know if you was in certain towns, certain places, you knew the majority of the force was white. But now it's cop and policing is different, you know, which makes the dynamic of seeing the police different. Because while policing at the root is what we're talking about and the trauma associated with police brutality from the formation of police, right? up into it from its conception to now and now we have people of all races that are cops and it's depending on your city depending on the amount of different races you'll see within the force okay i can accept that but i i say that until such time as the threat of being videoed came about. The color of the cop wasn't always an indication of who pulled you over. But that's what I'm saying. That's, that, no, that, no, that's I don't I'm, think you understand where I'm coming from. What I'm saying is it may have been a black cop in that car that pulled you over. Okay, but prior to the time that video being videotaped became a possibility, 
that black cop may have been just as blue as the white cop that could have pulled you over. But and that's and that we are saying the same thing. That's why I'm saying like now while I while while we're talking about that, that's why we have to bring that up. Is that because people will say, you know, they'll hear the podcast and they'll be like, you know, y'all talking about you know white supremacy. All the cops ain't white, but we have to understand that's why I transition because I live in Memphis, right? So I know that you know, like you said, even with the the ability of videotape. I'm going to take it even a step further. It doesn't even matter if they get video. The ideology, like you saying, is already through and through. You, I, I, myself, talking specifically about myself, I've lived in multiple places and I've been in contact with the law, never been arrested, you know, never been to jail, but I've been in contact with the law. So specifically why I'm saying what you're saying is I know that it don't matter what color that cop is, but that's why we got to bring that up because police brutality is not exclusive to white cops. Not at all. And so, I won't say I won't say it doesn't matter what color that cop is. I'll say that it may not matter. It may not matter it, and, and, because and, I have had experience as I've talked to you earlier. I've had experience in my lifetime of actually knowing some police officers as human beings. Right. Okay. Um, I had a, one of my best friends, father was a police officer and I spent a lot of time in their household. So I know that that does not necessarily pertain to every individual. Just like not every white cop is, is a racist or is likely to brutalize you. No. But at the same time, they may not be willing to step forward to stop you from being brutalized. But that's why we have to preference everything you said in the beginning, the history of it. Because when people think about police brutality, we think about the now. We don't think about what became what came before. So we'll people will be stuck on the fact, well, there's more black cops here. So there's black cops doing what? No, you're not understanding the philosophy of policing in America. Right. So yeah. when when we start talking about policing, we got to talk about like the ideology of policing and politics. Right. And how police are basically the gatekeepers of politics. You see what Definitely. I'm saying? Definitely. But we also you also have to go a step further and look at the mentality, the mental uh, perception of what makes someone want to be a cop? Okay, we, we already know that a very large majority of them are ex-military. We know yes. that. Yes. So they've been they've been indoctrinated into a society of violence, so to speak. All right, and been trained in that mentality of 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 taking orders yeah of exacting orders right okay because because you don't just take the orders you have to carry them out right without conscious without right. conscious like no second thought yeah so you have to first look at what where's that mentality come from and 
what does that say about the individual who puts on the uniform badge and gun? Then you have to look at the effects of walking around with that gun hours upon hours, day after day, where it becomes a second, where it becomes like a, a, a third appendage or a fifth appendage, okay? It's no longer a, it's no longer a tool, it's a part of you. I've seen a cop running down. I've seen a cop running down. And by the time he took his running somebody down, by the time he took his second step, he had already unsnapped the gun. He had already unsnapped the holster and had his hand on his gun while running. That's muscle memory. Yeah, and not even just muscle memory. That's just like, like you, you know, we start talking about our responses to situations, right? So he got muscle memory. But it also something clicked in his head because we start talking about mentality, right? Because everybody don't get those same responses, right? Every time police police people differently, they police yeah. different communities differently. So we have to have that mentality of like some of them are smart enough to withhold or withdraw, have restraint or be able to de-escalate in certain communities, whereas though why is it and it's a good question good thing to talk about why is it that this community no matter the color no matter the, the background even if you came from this people you got the badge it's still the ideology that this person is to be treated as a dog to be put down right like because, a because you see those communities as being worthless those communities are are traditionally looked at as being worthless, which is one of the reasons why they police by communities are policed differently, is because you look at a map of of a of a major city, and you see areas where it's depressed, where there's uh, a high concentration of drug use and sales. And that community, even though there are people in that community that doesn't don't fit into those lanes, that community is viewed through the eyes or through the aspect of those that do fall into that category. Yeah. You know, everybody, so, everybody is under that umbrella of poverty. Right. Despite your character. No, it's, it's, and it's crazy because, like, these communities, we are policed differently, and it's based on perception, right? And that perception is what's so traumatizing to people. But the perception goes back to the history. You're right. And that's why we talk about it. goes back to the history. The perception goes back to how do you undo 200, 300, 400 years of viewing a particular type of person or particular ethnic group or particular race as being less than human, less than American. 
I mean, you can't do it without telling the truth. That's first. You know, like, because we, I mean, we haven't even gotten to, uh, you know, as we was talking about different communities, you're talking about drug infested. Like, you know, we don't talk about how we glorify as crack, you know, glorify as cocaine and all of that and how the police were pivotal in putting all of those things in our neighborhoods and keeping our thing. So they put it in our neighborhood. And then when we started there selling it, right, and we started using it, then they started locking us up for it, right? And then so it was getting on both ends. They getting money on because it was like you had the good cops. And that's the thing. Like you got good cops, you got bad cops, but they all in the same boat and they protect each other. So you well, got your bad started cops. Locking us, they only started locking us up for it when um, the Reagan administration really declared a war on drugs. That, that was I mean, Tricky Dick. That, that was yeah, that was yeah. no, that wasn't Ronald. That was uh Richard Nixon who did the war on drugs because it started with heroin and the dog whistle politics, right? That you know, they 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 started with you know, that was when that uh war on drugs started and Reagan ramped up on it. Yeah, Reagan Reagan, Reagan ramped up on it to where it, it where it became something where they really where they really started giving out uh unwarranted sentences. To low-level dealers and whatnot, they—I mean—they would lock you up and basically on a local level and basically give you a short sentence if you had enough to be considered a dealer. But during the Reagan era, they—they—that's when mandatory they started. Minimums. They started mandatory minimums, and they made. The mandatory minimum for crack, ten times that for powdered cocaine. Yeah, and 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 that's what I'm saying. Like when we watch documentaries like the Thirteenth, and we start talking about, like we said in this podcast, like police being the gatekeepers of pol- politics. So we talk about Richard Nixon and the CIA and and and, and the FBI and all these people being having their hands in on crack, right? And putting it in communities to be sold. And, you know, we know this to be true because it's in every movie about crack. And we got Free Ray Ricky Ross who did his time, got out. And now he's a, he's every every dope dealer's favorite person. You know what I'm saying? But they all in cahoots with the police. You know what I'm saying? Because we yeah, look well, at police as government too. FBI well, still police. Yeah, CIA. I mean, well, you got to have enforcers. Right, and that's what, it's just like any. It's just like the mob. You got to have an enforcer, and they yeah. the enforcers like they, cause like like you said, like man, like when it comes down to crack, uh, the '90s three strike rule, um, you know the crime bill, the '94 crime bill, like you know black people, be like yeah, we were for that, but we not even knowing that we sipping on our own poison. The poison that they put in our community and we following along with it instead of saying all of y'all wrong. We need the police ain't doing their jobs. They down in our community. See, we put a lot of faith in police. And then when they don't, and it's like it's like as, as a poor community, we put a lot of faith in our politicians. We put a lot of faith in a lot of people. And they don't show up for us. Right? They don't show up to protect us to give us the necessities that we need. But we're the reason why they, you know, they are where they're at. Because they always come to our neighborhood when they need votes. 
when they need districts. They you can't do it without the poor folk. So, but it's like we constantly, you know, get brutalized because it ain't even just about, you know, uh, racism when it comes to police brutality. Some of these cops are sexist. They do. Some of the cops are sadistic. Yes. Let's let's get let's go to where let's go to where the mental to the, where the mental aspect comes in that we were talking about earlier. Right. Let's face the facts that you have sadists who have a badge and a gun. Right. Like the guy in Chicago who raped all those women and he was a cop. You know what I'm saying? Like he had been on a terror. And it's like the police will protect each other. And see, the community of people who protect police, right, they don't want to talk about these things. But that's because they're insensitive to what we're talking about as a whole, emotional health, right? You talk about you're protected, but you're not protected if you don't feel like your life, right? If you feel like when, so like we talk about certain communities, when the cop come around, they feel now everything is going to be under control. Other people, when the cops come around, they feel like, I don't know what could happen. And especially goes back to what you said. We got people who didn't witness this stuff. You, don't, you We don't know the impact of seeing someone getting kidnapped by the cops, killed by the cops, raped by the cops, and your family member coming home now you feel powerless. We don't look at the impact like a person to throw a stone in the river and they see the waves and they think that stone, you know what I'm saying, I cause ripples. That's like trauma. Trauma's the same way. What happens to one person happens to a lot of people in that person's circle. Yeah, because you have to look at how it's transmitted. Right. And you have to look at how how much how much we do subconsciously how much we transmit subconsciously right it's like you know um a rape victim subconsciously has the potential if they have kids especially if they if it's a woman and she has daughters she has the potential to pass that victimology on to her daughter without without making a conscious effort, without it being something that she does implicitly. Yeah, I mean, that's just like racism. You're like, Well, no, you, racism is taught. No, I'm I talking about... With you. <laughs> no, 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 hear me out, hear me out. What I'm saying is just like the effects of racist people okay. on people, right? So like okay, you the said, effects of racism. Right, right. So when you right. say the victimology, you pass it so subconsciously, you're yeah. passing that on, not even knowing that you pass it on implicitly. And that's the thing we talk about with police brutality, because it happens to so many people it, in our community. It, we don't even know that we're passing on that implicit, like without being implicit. So you pass it on your fear. Your yeah, the, whole, the, the whole idea of Black people needing to have the talk with their children. Thank you. The whole idea of, of that talk being a necessity. Yes. 
is passing it on. It's it's perpetuating the trauma. The, the trauma, but at the same time, it is indeed a necessity in today's society. But that's why we have to have these conversations because a lot of people that like a lot of people of color, people in the poor communities don't know that this is at the root of what people are going through with the police. So you'll see people acting out, but they just think, are oh, you poor? You, you just, just be quiet. Just, just sit down. Just, uh, you know, uh, uh, what they call it. Um, comply, comply, comply. But it's like, man, it's hard to comply if you know and been in situations where you have been victimized. You know, you've been traumatized. We have traumatic responses. And I'm not validating and making it okay. But I'm being sensitive to the fact, just like anybody who's been victimized, we should be sensitive to the fact of their victimization and the impact of that victimization. Right? And that's why we have this, this movement of Me Too, and we need more of it. Like, it ain't just about one speck of understanding what victim everybody who's been through something carries emotional weight that we all should be aware of. And now we're becoming more aware of it. It's not just with rape victims. We're also talking about childhood trauma. We're also talking about military trauma. Like the different, like we're starting to understand the impact on the emotional level and how that impacts our nervous system. Cause like you said, this stuff that we are dealing with, the body keeps the score. That's why like we all think about a rape victim being like the poster child for trauma because we know that we live in a rape culture and we see how that, how that the perpetuator, you know, how most likely they were harmed. We see how it begets it. And that's, we can apply that same lens to police brutality and the effects of racism. You see what I'm saying? And how you you start to see it so much. It's that moral injury. You see it so even if you didn't believe in it in the, in the beginning, you see it so much it becomes your who you are and and you start to pass it on. You know, you, you live through those fears or if you are the perpetrator you live out that identity. Like we said, that's the the fundamental thing of racism is everybody got to play their role, right? So let me ask you this. Are there any um, key indicators that you could give to people so that they could see ways in which they pass on trauma in a situation involving brutality. Yeah, I mean, like you said, first indicator is like when we're reliving it and not processing it in a healthy way. So instead of standing up for ourselves, we're more or less um, creating identity, right? As a traumatic response. So like we talked about last episode, we got like the fight, the flight, freeze, and fawn. People pleasing is fine. Freeze. We know that's the isolator, disassociation, all that. We know we're fight or flight. So when we start talking about the effects of brutal police brutality, then we start to get how that shapes our, our, our personality and our behaviors. 
And one key indicator that is shaping your reality is how you see all the cops. Feeling the need to protect yourself against all cops, right? Because all cops aren't bad, but there are a lot of bad cops. But when we don't speak the truth and we create an identity that we think will keep us safe, that's doing us harm. Because it's nothing that we can do to stop a person who's already made up their mind on who they are. There's nothing you can do to stop that. So we have to realize instead of fitting into the schema of brutality, and that's on everything, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's police brutality, whether it's family drama, we got to stop fitting into the scheme of emotional harm and being more sensitive to the impact of it. See, a lot of people aren't sensitive. It's another key determinant. You don't become sensitive until it becomes a personal problem. Like, it's my son, my daughter, my family member. Then we get the charge. But we have to first become self-aware. What are our own feelings around police brutality? Am I sensitive to the plight of another? Or do I just blindly go with one side over the other? Because if I do that, that is a not a healthy way of being empathetic or compassionate. Because you're only showing it to one side. So that's one way. Number two is just how we make decisions. Like you said, instead of always teaching our children to submit to the regime, we need to teach our children how to advocate for themselves and advocate for change. And that's on any side. Too many of us emotionally become damaged and become facilitators of the damage now right and it's because we subconsciously like you said we just respond and instead of changing we go with the fear and what's seemingly comfortable if i speak up i cause more issues if i just buy my time bow my head i'll be okay but that's not the case for everybody if that was going to work we would not still have so many people dying at the hands of police. Because everybody who dying at the hands of police ain't being rowdy, ain't being rebellious. You see what I'm saying? We got yeah. cops literally making bad decisions. Like the cop in Florida with the mental health patient who shot the black man who was there to help, who had his hands up. And they were there for the mental health patient. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So those is like three major tips right there is just self-aware. What are your feelings around police brutality? What side are you choosing and why? Are you being sensitive? Are you being empathetic? Do you understand the history? Like we said today, outside of your feelings, do you understand the history of policing in this country? Where it started? The origins, how it transferred power from one community to another, 
how politics were involved, how they were the gatekeepers of this, the understanding. That's the self-awareness. That's the social awareness. And we had to do all of that, right? We had to take all of that information in with the idea to help us build better relations, right? To make better decisions and to be able to regulate ourselves in a healthy way so that we don't just have people of color or people in the poor communities that just respond, but understanding why they're even feeling the feelings that they feel. Whether it's a good cop or a bad cop, they understand what's at the root. And if you're not in that community understanding, you're not just observing, you know, roguish behavior. You are you seeing trauma. You're seeing trauma lived out. And it's not an excuse, but it's a it's a it's like if you're a coach, it's, you gotta you gotta take note and take heed of what's being put in front of you so you can then make the right moves. You feel what I'm saying? Yeah, adjustments. Right, right, make make the right adjustments. And and I say all that to say, like we were talking earlier, we have to make the right adjustments because we cannot fight the good fight of changing the world if we're not healthy people. If we you know, it's like trying to tie our shoe with one hand. You know, it's like trying to ride a bike with, you know, one leg. You know, it's going to be hard. I'm not saying it can't be done because we know and understand, like I said today, there's people that can tie their shoe with one hand. Yeah. But, but a lot of that, swing. a lot of that goes back to when you were talking about empathy. Okay. Our empathy is short lived. Yeah, it's very short lived. You know, it's like, it's like, um, it's like we we don't remember the last time until the next time something bad happens, and then we start empathizing again. And you, in order to create unity, you must have empathy. But and it's like what you just said, though, Pop. That is a characteristic of PTSD, complex PTSD, the short-lived empathy, the moral injury, you go back to living the same. You've been so bombarded with this emotion. We don't even, it's like, you know, you have the emotion, but it's like, it's so normalized. You're so desensitized to it. It doesn't change anything for you. We're not, like as they say, you know, if anybody who follows, you know, uh, something of a higher power, right? They have a higher power Life, you know, love is at the basis of you know finding a higher power. So it's like anybody that has that in their life should be appalled when people aren't leading with love. But like we saying, we live in a society where it's okay to be you know uh, roguish and go against love and destroy and kill and we glamorize it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We talked about that with the films. You know, we glamorize, we dramatize. You know, but at the same time, we still fail to tell the whole truth. Right. And that's the impact. The impact. That's why we're here today. Because the whole truth is the impact. And see, when you don't live in those communities or you don't go through that, you don't necessarily feel the impact. That's why it's okay for you to disassociate yourself or talk from a pedestal, as they say, you know? But we got to talk about that impact. 
because we got generations of people. Like you said, it was so real. People didn't witness somebody hung before. And then seeing that same person who hung that person in the cop car the next day. Acting as if they did nothing. Right. That's that's one of the important factors is that how can you have any level of humanity and simply go on about life as if you committed no egregious act. And that is the story of the century right there because that is a sect of the dominant population of people. Not saying all, but a sect of the dominant population of people who can do harm and go back to life as if they didn't do it. Praise God, be in church. You see what I'm saying? And it's like, that is not like that. That's like, how do you do that? Because at the end of the day, that's why. And for anybody who hears this podcast or on this, that you know, and you know, you hear that, oh, we weren't, y'all wasn't there. Steady trauma. Please go look it up and educate yourself. That's what we're here for. We're not just talking about this from a historical point of view. We're talking about this from a health point of view. And anyone who knows trauma, even the leading authorities on trauma, will uh, help you understand the impact of transgenerational or intergenerational trauma. Right? Even the effects of uh, things that happened hundreds of years ago. Look up Holocaust victims, Stockholm Syndrome, all of these things associated with trauma. So that's why you can't say, oh, you wasn't there. No, that's not how trauma works. The body keeps the score and the body passes it on like it's like like they pass on immunity. Like it passes on, you know, a woman having birth. She giving him everything she's ever been through. And then he gets half of his father's DNA. And the DNA is shaped by the experiences your parents been through and you've been through. And we know these things now. That's why we got to be more empathetic to police brutality. Because what we see is the expression of over 100 to 200 years of trauma. It's that deep. Yeah, it is. You know, but, you know, I think we hit on it today. I think we got there. You know what I'm saying? I think, you know, if they listen to this, they'll feel like, you know, I need to learn more. If you don't know about police brutality and history of it, you're not just look at it from a one-sided point of view, you know. And, you know, like we said, start to advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves or those who don't have the, the strength, right? You may have the strength, but we have to fight. Can't just align ourselves with an ideology when everybody who follows that ideology is not even a good person. You talking about good people. Let's just hold people accountable to be good people. Not like you said, sadistic. You know, yeah. allowing cops to just do crazy stuff. And we, we know that's not good hearted. It's not sending out good waves. And it's happening in our community. And then with, like you said, with video, we're seeing it more and more, which which traumatizes us even more and more. Yeah, that's why I, that's one of the reasons why I feel like the reaction to um, the the conviction in the flu in the George Floyd case has been over publicized and over 
overinterpreted as being a major change. It was simply, in my estimation, it was simply something that was too blatant to be ignored. Yeah. Yeah. Because had they had video of Brianna Taylor, could she have been ignored? Not like the way they not 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 like they doing it now. Not like they it's they word versus her word. Because with Derek Chauvin, it wasn't no word. Your hand was in the cookie jar, and that's like the only way we can get real justice. Is when we catch them with their hand in the cookie jar. And all you had to do, all you need to do is look at his expression when he knew he was being filmed. There was absolutely no possible way that he could not have known that he was being filmed. And all you need to do is look at his expression to see the sadist in him. Yeah. Oh, he said he was going to live all this out. It wasn't nothing that those people on the side could cry out could say he was like I'm going to live all of this out and you got four other officers four, three other officers right there holding on to it and you felt the need you know but like you said a lot of this be deputized is undercurrents of implicit bias like my boy Ahmad Bra, uh, Ahmad uh, uh, forget his last name but uh, huh you talking about Aubrey yeah, like these folks really chased him down as those they was the cops, like it was back in the day, you yeah. know, like it was the 19 early 1900s. Like, we have a loose Negro that needs to be put down, he looks like he's causing ruckus. And, like, see, we don't even understand like how film and media, like you said, the obla publicization of these ideologies contribute to reality. You feel what I'm saying? Yeah. Like the first film in America, motion picture film of any any reverence, like really loved in this country, was Birth of a Nation, which depicted black people as unruly, chicken eating, rapists, robbing, stealing, boo boo the fool, you know, just all scary, you know, and that's what is that the underlying, you know. Uh, root of all of this because even in that movie, the KKK was glamorized. Yeah, they were the white knights coming to coming to save America, and that's what I'm saying. When we start talking about where art imitate life, life imitate art. You see what I'm saying? That's where we at. Where we start talking about the trauma and why people do the things they do. You know, well, we got us. We discussed that when we talked about perception because yeah. there are so many people in this country that don't want to take on the the burden, okay? And I say burden very sarcastically. Yeah. Okay. The burden of actually thinking. Yeah. They want to they want to just usurp somebody else's idea or somebody else's ideology or somebody else's position and run with it. Yeah. Give me the ball, coach. I'll take it. <laughs> right, right, man. I mean, I thought, like I said, I think we really hit on it. I think we really did. Uh, we might have to come back and do a part two because I, I don't think you know as much as we outlined the correlation between then and now. I don't think we we did as much justice as 
the history as it opposed like the Central Park Five, right? You know, um, talking about the 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 the, the school to prison pipeline. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that, like these are the things that are like at the root of the distrust between the system policing. You know what I'm saying? Like we don't we gotta I think we you know we gotta talk about this a little bit more. I would love to do another, you know, and have some more people on that episode as well, you know, police brutality and the impact of it, you know, and just talking like you said, more history, more, you know, anecdotal experience, like cause you know, everybody got their own experience with the cops. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, you know, pretty much everybody has seen, heard, or experienced firsthand some negative aspect of police of, of policing in America. Yeah. Go ahead and say yeah. police brutality, because it ain't always physical. No, it's you know not. What I'm saying? And sometimes it's verbal, very much so. Yeah. Or mental, you know. Again, these people are supposed to be our public servants. They're not supposed to be our handlers. Well, you can only be considered the public if you're considered a, a citizen. Person. Yeah. And we were three. In order three to be fifths. considered a citizen, you have to first be considered a person. Yeah. And, we, and you we, have to you know, add, we know the history of that. <laughs> yeah, your humanity has to be accepted. It's like you know, I keep hearing about everybody's talking about they need to pass this voters' right, and I'm saying that all they have to do is honor the Bill of Rights, because the Bill of Rights doesn't say anything about your color. The Bill of Rights doesn't say anything about where you came from. The Bill of Rights says all men are created equal. So if you honor the Bill of Rights and accept us as being human. I think the only part they might need to add to that is all women too. You know, they might need to, yes. they might need to say all men and women are created. Yeah. yeah. You know, but yeah. if they honor the Bill of Rights, then all of that other stuff is unnecessary. It shouldn't it should not necessitate an act when the original bill gives us the rights that the act would give. And like you said, we're constantly fighting for the rights that were granted to white people at the conception of this country. And it's like they don't—they don't even see that, you know. They don't yeah. even see that. Like these rights were afforded for the white man, especially because, like you said, that doesn't include women. So women have had their own fight, especially you know, with the fact of being able to work and vote and all of that in this country. So everybody's had a fight, but the who's always been at the top is like you know, the white man and and and. If everyone was afforded the rights of white men that founded this country, right, then they, like you said, there would be no problem. If we all had the right to bear arms, freedom of speech, to be who we're going to be, we wouldn't have to have a Crown Act saying that women can wear their hair how it grows. Like, society wouldn't have to put and act through legislation. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, and we we have to realize that an act is only for a limited amount of time. Facts. Facts. That's, that's not that doesn't not become part amendment. of the Constitution. Right. It's not an yeah. amendment. <laughs> yeah. Man. But like, we, you know, like you said, we might need to come back and, and discuss this some more 
especially with all of the murmurs going around about the uh, states, certain states are trying to outlaw videotaping the police. Mm. Yeah. So we might need to see what see how that flies or doesn't fly and come back and have another discussion and determine how you're going to uh, eliminate my Second Amendment right. So that you can continue to have police brutality. Facts, facts, yeah, and, and it's and like you said, it's, it's it, and all we're doing is painting the picture, so people can have a better understanding of what's going on, so that it, it's not you know we don't want people to look at this from an emotional standpoint. We want us to look at it from a logical stand. Even folks that are oppressed, you know, like you know us coming from the community we come from. We still want to look at it from a logical standpoint to be able to understand, like, you know, what are we dealing with? It's, you know, like you say, it's chess, not checkers. Okay. Definitely. So, you know, we always got to make our next move, our better move. And, you know, with that said, I appreciate you, Pop, being on here, sharing this time because it's definitely, you know, it it, it definitely put me in the space of, you know, I've grown. I know that I've grown because I know I've been an angry young man and seen myself looking at the cops, like, and then just even having this conversation with you, you know, seeing how I, I look at things a little different now, you know, and I, I, I fight for, I fight in a different way now, you know what I'm saying? And, yeah. and even hearing what you said about the past, it's just like more information to galvanize me, you know what I'm saying? To fight in the way that I'm fighting now. Uh, you know, it's always a pleasure. Yeah. So we're going to wrap get you a uh get you on here again you know you might be a reoccurring you know guest <laughs> as you are but uh we appreciate you got any final words for him before you get out of here just use your mind don't lose your mind and stay safe that's right that's coming from the man himself thomas pray my father um we appreciate you guys for sticking in here with us you know great conversation education through conversation soul of us podcast you know your favorite mental health coach and we promote emotional literacy trauma awareness social emotional learning five core principles self-awareness social awareness positive decision making self-regulation and relationship building so tap in with us if you need any coaching dm me um if you would like me to come speak if you would like anything you know, as far as our services, reach out. We're here. We're always committed to bettering our community. So if you hear this and you know somebody who could benefit from the information, pass it along. You know, like, share, and subscribe. Soul of Us um, uh, on uh, Instagram. Uh, Soul of Unified Stance on Instagram. Uh, Unified Stance Family Services on Facebook. Uh, we also got uh, YouTube page, Soul of Us Podcast, and we stream it on all the podcast platforms, Spotify, Google Podcasts, um, uh, what was it, Cast, uh, um, Apple, all of them. So check us out. If you're watching live, just look at the banner at the bottom. And we signing out on another good Friday. We love y'all. Appreciate y'all. We're going to continue to give you this, this, this information, this love. Because we're trying to impact our lives, other people's lives in a way where we can heal on this journey to emotional wellness. And everything impacts us. So like my dad said, 
Use your mind, don't lose your mind. And we out of here.